Hello, and welcome to the City Baptist Church Podcast, where our desire is to help others find meaning and mission in following Jesus. Today's message is from our brand new sermon series, Acts, Church on the Move. In this series, we follow the expansion of the early church. Even in the midst of persecution, we see the church experience tremendous growth through the power of God and staying faithfully committed to the Word and community. Well, let's take our Bible and let's go to Acts chapter number 9 this morning. Acts chapter number 9. You say, uh, uh, we're going to continue in our study of Acts. Yep, we're going to continue in our study of Acts. And I think you'll be, um, well, I, I don't know if you'll be, but I know I, I was definitely amazed at how the Lord seems to put things together uh, that go right along with what we're going through. And uh, so we're in Acts chapter 9. And to continue this morning, now where we left off last week, of course, was the very famous situation of Saul on the road to Damascus. If you remember that from last week, maybe you missed it, you can check it out uh, on the podcast for sure. But man, what an incredible situation that was as the Lord Jesus Christ himself revealed who he was to Saul, the one who was the great uh, persecutor of the church. And we saw how literally uh, Saul was knocked to his knees as he was confronted uh, with the evidence that Jesus Christ truly was God. Of course, he was then blinded. He was led into Damascus. And you remember that God sent a man by the name of Ananias to come alongside of him, to comfort him, to encourage him. And of course, then he received his sight and Ananias was able to give him really what God's calling was for him uh, for the future. And what we saw at the end of the message uh, last week was was that almost immediately Saul began to preach and teach Jesus Christ as being God. If you remember that, he began to proclaim it right from the very beginning. Back in uh, verse number 22, it says that he was strengthened even uh, as he began to prove that he was thus this very Jesus Christ. And I think that's so amazing to see the radical transformation that can take place in a life when they're confronted with the reality of who Jesus is and they submit to that reality. And immediately Saul, this great persecutor of the church, was transformed into a preacher of the gospel. And I love those kind of transformations stories in scripture because they relate so often to the transformation stories that we know uh, in our own lives and that we know about other people. And so that's where we were last week. But between verse 22 and verse number 23, which we're going to begin in tonight or this morning, uh, here's what's so interesting is that between verse 22 and between verse 23, uh, we believe there's approximately three years passed. Just like that. Uh, from the period at the end of verse 22 uh, to the beginning of verse 23, about, tw- about three years passed at this time because what took place is that Saul, uh, as he was preaching the gospel, then it says that he, uh, in Galatians, he tells the story how he left and he went to Arabia for about three years. Now it's interesting because the Bible doesn't really tell us exactly what happened during that time that he was away. We know, uh, we believe anyway, that it would have been spent with the Lord. You have to imagine his entire life had been studying the law, uh, looking at it through a certain paradigm, but now that he knew Jesus Christ, Christ, everything had changed. And so he went uh, away and spent some time with the Lord, I'm sure in prayer, I'm sure that God, that God spoke to him in incredible ways as he began to understand his truth or what he had learned through the eyes of Jesus Christ. But in verse number 23, we see him coming from that place and then returning to where it all started, back to Damascus. And when he returned to Damascus, a very, well, for us, when we read scripture, this is totally predictable. To him, it might not have been predictable, but I'll begin reading in verse 23. It says, and after that many days, there's the three years. <laughs> Isn't that great? You, you ever have a conversation with somebody like, what have you been doing the last five years? Like, ah, you know, a few things happened and I'm here today. Uh, that's basically what he says. After that many days, three years, he came back uh, to Damascus. So the days were fulfilled. The Jews took counsel to kill him. What do you know? Not a surprise to us. Might've been a surprise to him. 
But he came back to Damascus and they decided that they wanted to kill him. It says, but their laying await was known of Saul. So he heard about it and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. So basically he was in Damascus. They had all the gates covered. They had spies at every gate. When he starts to try to leave, we're going to get this guy. Then verse 25, and I love this. It says, then the disciples took him by night and let him down by the wall in a basket. I think that's really cool. You know, because we think of like a little like Easter basket, you know, and there's, he's pushing aside the Easter eggs and he's standing in there. It would have been a large basket, of course, and they would have, and so they lowered him, lowered him over the side of the wall so that he could escape in, night, in the night. That shows us again, of course, how much these disciples loved him and, and cared for him. And so they're willing to uh, help him get away. But then as the passage continues in verse 26, we see him then head to go to Jerusalem to join up with the other disciples. But look what happens in verse 26. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to disciples. That means he desired, he wanted to be with those disciples. Remember, he had heard about Jesus Christ. He had grown in his faith. He was preaching the truth. He had been away for three years and he thought to himself, surely by now, when I return to Jerusalem, I'll be able to talk with these believers that I've heard so much about. In fact, I'll be able to maybe talk and maybe apologize to Peter uh, for some of the things that I did to him and did to the church there. And so he desired to go and be with them. But notice this, three years later, they were all afraid of him. Still, they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. Talk about suspicion, right? He came to Jerusalem. He says, guys, the Lord, you know, save me. Everything has changed. No longer am I persecuting. I've been away for three years. They're like, yeah, right, you've been plotting for three years. And, and he says, now I'm here and I want to I grow and I want to uh, be, be involved here. It says that they did not believe him because they were afraid. And that's where another man stepped in. And I don't have these verses, but if you read down through the passage, we see another man stepped in at this point. His name was Barnabas. Now, Barnabas means sons of, son of consolation. It actually means he's an encourager. Everywhere we see Barnabas, he's encouraging and bringing people together. And that's what Barnabas does there for those believers. They're all scared, but he brings in Saul uh, still at that time, and he confirms to them what had happened there in Damascus. He said, I've heard him preach. I've heard what had happened in his life. And he was able to repair that relationship. But even though the relationship with the believers was repaired, there were still some people that were in uh, in Jerusalem who would not have it and so of course Saul in his character went and he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus verse 29 and he disputed against the Grecians but they went about to what's that word there slay him that's not just kill him they're gonna slay him I mean that's that sounds pretty it's pretty scary there they had a plan as to how they were going to take him out which when the brethren knew those are the believers at Jerusalem they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to uh, Tarsus. So there was this plan to kill him of these Grecian Jews, which is interesting enough, that is who he was, in fact. Those are Greek-speaking Jews of who Saul was, a Greek-speaking Jew, Jew, and uh, he had grown up, of course, uh, learning that language, and he was one of them, but yet they still, because of his faith, desire desire to kill him. It's so interesting in life that often when you become a, a new believer, you become a Christian, that the people that you are just like often still reject you. Now, many of you have been through that, You've, you've been through, when you became a Christian, you went to those friends that you were like, this is my best friend in the world. I went to high school with this person. I grew up with this person. I mean, we are so close. And you shared with them your faith that you saw that there immediately became some friction there. You thought, well, I'm just like you. We all grew up together. But you know what? In Jesus Christ, there are some things that change. There are some differences that come about. And that's what we see with Paul here. The very people that he had grown up with, the people that he was uh, the most related to or he relatable to turned on him and desired to kill him. Now, this is the last that we see of Saul then in 
the book of Acts until Acts chapter number 11. This, this is what happened here. The, the disciples, they heard, they helped him to get away. He went up to Caesarea for a while, and then he went home to Tarsus. For the next seven years now, well, seven years, we don't hear of Saul. So basically, it's see you later, Saul, at this point. <laughs> but I'm going to continue now in chapter 9 of Acts. Because I want to take notice about something. I want to remind you about something. Now, it's been some years have passed, certainly since the day of Pentecost. But I think you can see just in these few verses that there still was a temperature of persecution within the church. There was still a temperature of persecution there in Jerusalem of people that would literally kill somebody who did not know Jesus Christ. Those people that were of the way, the persecution of them had not subsided. And so for these Christians there in Jerusalem, I just want you to remember and to feel what it was like to have the threat of death over you just for sharing your faith. It's still, if you can try to tie into and connect into what it would have been like to live in Jerusalem, it still would have been a very unnerving and anxiety-filled feeling in the city for people who followed after Jesus Christ. But what I want you to notice today in our verse that we're going to cover for the message this morning is that even though persecution is still rampant, even though lives are at stake, even though families have been split up and are continually to be split up because of persecution, even in the middle of all of that anxiety and, and all that insecurity, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 31, we have what I like to call a breath of fresh air <laughs> right here in the middle of all of the chaos. And so I want you to look with me here at verse number 31. It says, then had the churches, what's that word? Rest. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria. That's everywhere the church was at this point. And were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost, were multiplied. In the middle of the chaos, it says that the churches had rest. Well, what does the word rest mean? Well, the word rest means peace. It means quietness. It means uh, tranquility, security. It means safety. And again, this is in the middle of a time of persecution. There were legitimate fears within the city but we see a church at rest. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see this word, that's what I want in my life right now. <laughs> I want some rest. I want some peace. I want some tranquility. I want some security. Now, like I, I sort of alluded to at the beginning, I was intending and I worked this entire week on preaching a message to you from Acts chapter number 10, the gospel to the Gentiles for the first time. I'm excited about that message still. But yesterday morning before our prayer meeting, in my own prayer time and study, uh, really early in the morning yesterday, I kept coming back to this verse as I was working through and the transitional thoughts to get into chapter number 10. And God was like, you need to preach on this verse right here. And I was like, no, Lord, it's Saturday. <laughs> I got to preach tomorrow. He said, you need to preach on this verse. And so uh, I'm just following the Lord's leading this morning. As we cover this subject, I feel an important subject. How do we have rest today? How do we as Christians have rest? Because we're in a time where many people are struggling with fear, aren't we? If you didn't know that, guess what? People are fearful right now. We're in a time that is full of anxiety, of insecurity. But as Nisley mentioned earlier on, we as Christians are no strangers to this kind of opposition. In fact, as believers, we're not even to be surprised by trials at all. And it's almost like it's built into the DNA of the Christian is the ability to be at rest, even in the middle of chaotic times. 
And yet, while we as believers often acknowledge that, you know, and last week we gave out those uh, pennants, and at the time, I was like, oh, you know, this is great. Uh, I had no idea how things were just going to take off. You know, faith over fear, and, and, uh, and I think it's really the Lord just sort of worked all of that out. And we as Christians say that, and we're like, oh, yeah, faith over fear, you know, and of course, people misunderstand what that means as a believer, what we're trying to say, and we have all these little sayings, let's have peace, not panic, and I've seen stuff like that all over social media, of course, uh, the, last, uh, the last few days for sure. But it's easy to say, but it's hard to apply, isn't it? I've even found myself over the last uh, week uh, having moments of worry, moments of concern, moments of, hey, what's, what's really going on here? So this morning I want for us to learn from the early church how we can be at rest. How can we have peace in troubling times? Just like we see here in the middle of persecution, we see the church at rest. How does that happen? Well, in verse number 31, uh, we see a three-step process in how to experience rest and how to experience peace in difficult times. And I think even right now it is more applicable since we seem to be at a place where even our city, our country, is almost brought to its knees by fear. We find this plan, I think, summarized in verse 31. Uh, Luke really summarizes it very well for us. But as you kind of dig into it, and often this is the way it is, you'll read a verse just like the idea of, and after many days. Well, a lot happened in those many days. In the same way when they say the church had rest, a lot has been going on. A lot is happening around the church. And so we're going to try to dig into it a little bit and understand how we can have rest as a church. And so look back at verse number 31. It says, then have the churches rest throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria. And I want you to see this, and were edified. They were edified. If we're to have rest in troubling times, the first aspect that we see about the early church is that they edified one another. You say, how, is, how do you know that? Well, the verse says it. <laughs> they were edified. And so if edification is going to take place, that means people are going to be doing the edifying. So what does it mean uh, to, be, uh, to, to edify? Well, let's look at the definition of it from the wor- Greek word okadomeo. I know it looks like something you would maybe order at a Japanese restaurant. It reminded me of a type of sushi I like, but uh, uh, it's a Greek word and I probably mispronounced it, but it means to be a house builder. Don't you like that? It means to be a house builder. It means to construct or to build up from the foundation. And this is what I love is that as Christians, we have a foundation. His name is Jesus Christ. And so we already have that foundation that we can build upon. And so a person who's an edifier is already building upon the idea of Jesus Christ, okay? That, that shared faith. It also means to promote growth in wisdom. And today I think we would call it, and we use these two words uh, interchangeably often in scripture. Uh, it, the idea of being an edifier is being an encourager. Just somebody who encourages other people. Now in scripture, uh, the, word edify, <coughs> the word edify, excuse me, <coughs> is used in, in different ways. Of course, it's dealing with the idea of building up the church, uh, both the people uh, and then as a collective as well. But there's a couple of different aspects of it. And the first directive of edification is given specifically to church leaders. In Ephesians uh, chapter number four and verse number 11, it says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Now, this is where we sometimes get it messed up, right? We're like, oh, God gave us a pastor to do the work of the ministry. No, no. God gave us a pastor as a church to perfect, to mature the saints so they then could do the work of the ministry and be involved in the work of the ministry. And so that's uh, what we see here. But notice, here's the big reason for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so one of the aspects of being or having authority in a church situation is that we are to build the members of the church up. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 8, uh, Paul said, for though I should boast somewhat more of our authority, 
which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, I should not be ashamed. And so the point of authority within the church or biblical leadership within the church is for the idea of uh, encouragement, for building uh, the church family up and building up individuals. And, and it's something that I take very, very seriously. Something I take very, very seriously. As a pastor to encourage and to be encouraging because I recognize that not all aspects of the word of God are encouraging, right? It's challenging. And so it's, you can pray for me in that, to be an encourager. And there's other ways to be encouraging, of course. Not that every message is you're the best and you're going to take over the world. Um, but uh, there's ways for us to be an encourager. But primarily, uh, or, or at, a, at, a, at a, I guess a, a prominent point, is uh, it is to be relegated to leadership. However, the work of edification is not just for the leadership. It is a responsibility of every single Christian. I want to show you some passages on that. 1 Thessalonians 5.13 uh, tells us, Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another. This is a letter written to a church. So edify each other, encourage each other, even as also you do. What he's saying there is that you're already doing it, but continue to do it. Keep encouraging one another. Romans chapter 14, verse 19 says, Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace and things wherewith one may edify one another. Look at that. He says you need to pursue and go after the things that would be an encouragement to others. Now that can apply in your personal decisions, the decisions you make in your own life, and as well the things that you pursue in order to be a blessing and an encouragement to other people. And edification or encouragement is an intentional characteristic of the believer, particularly within the local church. And we understand this, but oftentimes when we hear messages about edification, our, uh, in our flesh, what we do is we say, okay, great, edify me. <laughs> edify me, pastor. Like, man, I wish somebody would encourage me, right? And we think that, don't we? Man, I wish, I wish, you know, if we preach a message of edification and the whole time we're sitting there like, man, I wish somebody would do that for me. That sounds like a good deal. I hope somebody encourages me. Here's, here's what I've come to learn in life. The best way to encourage yourself is to encourage someone else. That's a, that's a truth of life. If you're struggling and needing encouragement, one of the best ways to encourage yourself is to encourage someone else. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, <clears throat> we know that we all have knowledge. And then it says, Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth it. Now that word charity there is the idea of sacrificial love. Giving to others. Helping others. Being a blessing and sacrificing yourself to show love to another person is something that can edify. In Romans chapter 15, it says, We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification. We are pleasing and helping others not to make ourselves feel good, but to encourage them. And by the way, when you encourage others, you are always encouraged yourself. See, church, we have to have a mind to edify and lift each other up. And when that happens, something very special happens within a church body. Those that are struggling, those that maybe are weak in their faith, those that are struggling in their pursuit of God can be encouraged, and you then, as a result, are encouraged. It's kind of like, as a parent, I think we understand this in a unique way, um, because it's always exciting to see your uh, kid take a step forward in their development. Like the other day, uh, Royal was talking to Jeanette and I. He was in like the living room. He was kind of, he kind of yells a little bit. He was, he was talking to us and, uh, and Jeanette and I was like, Royal, like, what do you need or whatever? Come in here and talk to us. Don't yell across the house, you know, come in. And Jeanette was like, I thought that was Owen. You know, his, his six-year-old brother, he's only two. And she's like, oh man, he's really like enunciating his, and, he, and he's changing. And you know what that makes us feel? That makes us happy. 
It's great. He's developing. Uh, you know, uh, uh, he counted up to 18 the other day as a two-year-old. I mean, that made me feel pretty proud as a very unsmart person myself. <laughs> it made me great. See my kid, a two-year-old, he counted. He counted all the way up the stairs, walking up the stairs, and, and he's always doing these things, and that makes me proud. I love to see him develop. You know, it's like John. Man, he's just going to be watching his daughter like a hawk, and the first time she looks directly at him, he's going to be like, she knows me, and you know, and all of these things, and you're watching this development go, and it happens so rapidly at first. <laughs> Later on, it's slower. Uh, it definitely slows down the development, but we get so excited, and we get encouraged by it, um, and for the, for the Christian, it's sort of that same idea as we edify and encourage each other. It's exciting to see someone else be encouraged in the Lord, to see somebody growing, and for us as Christians, when life is crazy, when things are uncertain, we have to have a focused mind to encourage. We must be intentional about thinking about one another, intentional about praying for your church family, intentional at getting to know one another more than just the casual church elbow hello, right? <laughs> or foot handshake or whatever we're doing now. <laughs> or just conversation at the, at the hand sanitizer station. We got to get to know one another and really know each other. Not just be like, oh, hey, how are you doing? But actually get to know one another so you can be an encouragement to them. It means that rather than desiring always to be cared for, cared for, we actively seek to care for others. Now that's countercultural. That's counter flesh to how we are. We often desire so much to be cared for, but we need to have a desire to care for one another, especially, especially when we are times like we are today. And I want to encourage you to be an encourager. <laughs> Look for ways to be a blessing. Look for ways to be helped. You know, we have some people in our church that will not be in church for a while because uh, they have some immune deficiencies. They have some health struggles already. Guess what? They could use some encouragement. They really could. They could probably use a text message or a, or a, a video message to them just saying, hey, I was praying for you today and I want you to know that they, they could use maybe an iTunes gift card so they can download a movie and kill some of this quarantine time, Right. <laughs> They might, they, they might love a, uh, 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 <laughs> uh, they, they, they might love a skip the dishes gift card emailed to them, right? These are just some practical ways I know in this moment that we're at that we can encourage each other. And it's not all about monetary things. You guys understand that. But letting them know that you care, letting them know that you're thinking about them. You know, Satan wants to use this time to discourage us. He really does. I, I believe that one of the uh, one of the side effects of these kind of things that ro go throughout uh, the world that people become so concerned about, Satan's all about discouraging believers through it. And we need to be the first ones to encourage and to edify and to build one another up. And the early church found rest in that verse, if you notice there, and they were edified, they were encouraged, they were built up, even in a time of difficulty. But secondly, I want you to notice that they were built up because they feared the Lord. It says they were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord. Point number two, they feared the Lord. Now the word fear there comes from the Greek word phobos. You probably knew that one already. It's where we get all of our phobias from. But it has multiple different meanings. It's applied in different ways throughout Scripture. And of course, there's always the context with it. It could have the idea of terror, the idea of reverence. You know, Jeremiah said that for the person who does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, terror is an adequate uh, uh, feeling to fear or to feel for the person that does not know God. But it also means reverence. It also means honor and submission. Now, as children of God, for us, we do not have terror. We are not terrified of God because we know that he's already paid the price for our sin. We know that he's taken that punishment for us. But as Christians, as saved, adopted children of him, 
the proper attitude towards God for us is this biblical idea of fear of the Lord, which is the idea of respect, of reverence, or awe. In fact, in Scripture, where you see the word awesome, it's the same word used interchangeably, speaking about God and in awe of who he was. In uh, Eastern literature, it's interesting, the word fear and the word love are both terms associated with the idea of covenant loyalty or a loyalty because of a covenant between two people. And that's how it is with us, between us and God. We have respect and we have love and we uh, uh, have reverence towards him. And for us as believers, we need to learn to fear God, which means we have an allegiance to him. And then because of our allegiance to him, the consequences of that allegiance is that we then obey his instructions and as we obey his instructions, it, it affects our values, it affects our convictions, and affects then our behavior. Now these believers, this is so interesting, they found peace, think about it, they found rest in the fear of the Lord. Well, what does that mean? Here's what it means. It means that for these early believers in their daily lives, they had an awe, they had a reverence of a holy God. And because they had an awe and they had a reverence for a holy God and they loved him and they knew him for who he was, it radically changed their focus. And when you change your focus to God and to God alone, it will radically change your fears. It'll change the things that you are afraid of. Solomon said it this way, one of the wisest men to ever live in Proverbs 9, 10, he said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Probably many of you know this verse. As soon as often, this is the verse that we think of when we just think of the concept, the fear of the Lord. See, the fear of the Lord, the reverence, the respect, the awe of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's just the, it's the place where you start. And the knowledge of the holy is understanding. In Isaiah 33, verse 6, it says, And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy time. So if you want to have a stable mindset, you need to have wisdom. Where does wisdom begin? With the fear of the Lord. And strength of salvation. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. Now here's the truth. The fear of God, when we express it in humility, when we humble ourselves before him in worship, when we walk then in his wisdom because of the fear of the Lord, we then have no reason to be afraid of the things of this earth. Because when you understand and you truly know that God, uh, God's love for you, what happens is that his love for you will overcome any trials that you're facing. When you have the fear of the Lord, what it means is that you know that his sovereignty <laughs> guarantees his control in your life. When you have the fear of the Lord, it means that his goodness promises a peace when everybody else is in a panic. When you fear the Lord, it, it, you know then, and it's in your heart, that his grace is already better than you deserve. <laughs> and his protection is more, definitely more than we deserve. And so walking in the fear of the Lord opens the door for wisdom that sees this world in a totally different light. Totally different light. When we walk in the fear of the Lord, we can live without fear. We can have an unexplainable peace through Jesus Christ. That's why in Philippians chapter 4, it says, be careful for nothing. The idea of being careful for nothing means don't worry about anything. Don't worry, be happy is what it says, okay? How? <laughs> but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then it says this, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep, that's what I love, it keeps sustains, secures your heart and minds through Jesus Christ. See, the early church was able to have rest in times of peril and in times of discouragement and in times of fear because they knew that God was more than enough for them. They knew that. 
They believed it. They trusted it. They had seen it already in their life. And as because of that, they were able to walk through those difficult times. They were able to edify and encourage each other because of the fear of the Lord. But there's also a third part in the verse I want you to notice. They had rest because they were edified. They were encouraging. They had the fear of the Lord. They had a clear vision. You know, they, they truly had an understanding. But then on top of that, they had the comfort of the Holy Ghost. I love that. They were comforted by the Holy Spirit. Now, the word comfort here uh, is from the Greek word paraklesis, which means one called alongside or consolation. The idea is to have someone alongside of you. Now, I love this because it reminds us of the fact that no matter where we are, no matter what is surrounding us, as saved believers in Jesus Christ, we have the ever-present comfort and power of the Holy Spirit with us. Think about that. No matter what we're going through, no matter where we are, if you're saved, you have the presence of God with you at that moment. We so quickly forget that, don't we? So quickly. And we're in a moment of panic, in a moment of, of trial, and we forget the fact that God is with us. If you remember when Jesus, when he left this earth, he told the disciples, he said, it is a good thing for me that I leave this earth. Do you remember that? And they're like, shut up, Jesus. Oh, I don't think they told Jesus to shut up. <laughs> they're like, no way. Absolutely not. It is not a good thing. And to us, we look at it. How is it a good thing to not have Jesus on this earth? But he said, it is a good thing for me to leave this earth because then you would have the comforter, the Holy Spirit that would come, that would never be taken away from them. And it seems so crazy to uh, hear Jesus say that, but the reality is, is that he was right. By the way, he was always right. And Jesus was right that the best thing for us is the Holy Spirit to walk with us. Now, the Holy Spirit manifests itself in five different ways in our lives. John teaches this in his, uh, in his gospel, and I want to just cover them real quickly for us as a, as a moment to be reminded of the comfort fa comforting fact that the Holy Spirit is with us. So the first thing is in John chapter 14, verse 26, where it tells us that the Holy Spirit will teach believers all things. This is a, a very comforting thought. He said, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. And bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. What that means is that the Holy Spirit is what reveals the teachings of Jesus to us so we know what he's trying to say. So we can understand in a unique way. You remember how many times Jesus would be teaching his disciples and they would totally not get it. They'd be like, uh, can we eat now? Or whatever they would say. And, and, and he would have to explain. Don't you understand what I'm talking about here? And he would explain to them. Guess what? With the Holy Spirit of God, we know what God was saying. And we have his word and we have his Holy Spirit and we can discern and we can understand what he's trying to teach us. And so that's a wonderful truth of the Holy Spirit. As well, the Holy Spirit will give witness to Christ. John 15, 26, it says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. The Holy Spirit gives witness in our hearts that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he is who he said he is, and it gives us that faith to continue on and continue as well. The Holy Spirit will expose the world's error and bring conviction of sin. In other words, the Holy Spirit brings conviction to the sinner. John 16, 8, it says, And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. It helps us to discern between evil and right. You know, in the Old Testament, without the Holy Spirit, sometimes we look at uh, some of the characters in the Old Testament, we're like, how in the world did they do these things? They did not have the Holy Spirit of God that was walking with them. Yes, they had the law, but unless you're carrying it around with you sometimes, <laughs> they weren't always reminded of it, but we have the Holy Spirit. I hope that you're thankful for the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life. 
Too often we're resistant to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We should be grateful and thankful for its conviction. That is a gift to us from God. As well, the Holy Spirit guides believers in the way of truth. Howbeit when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, John 16, 13, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, or whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He was going to, he not only teaches us, but he will guide us into truth. Sometimes I need to know what is the right decision to make. I need to know what is the truth. And the Holy Spirit gives us that as well. Fifthly, John talked about in John 16, 14, says that he shall glorify me. The Holy Spirit will give glory and bring glory to God. For he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. You know, when we look at all of these ways, and this is a very quick overview of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but when you understand the gift of the Holy Spirit that we have as believers and we see the way that it works in my life, I really can see now how the Holy Spirit can change my perspective from a person of faith to a, per, uh, from a person of fear to a person of faith. If you really understand the work of the Spirit, and as you study this a bit more, I'd encourage you to go back and read those passages that I just mentioned to you. You can maybe write them down. It, you'll understand how it can change your perspective from that of panic to of peace. Uh, somebody said it this way, the Holy Spirit is like, uh, is like a security device. Or, or better this, the Holy Spirit is like a smoke alarm. Um, uh, at, at our place, we have, um, we have a, uh, I, I don't know why, but I'm terrified of a hot water tank bursting. I don't know why. It's just like a personal fear. You can pray about that with me. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I just, I don't know. I remember it happened as a kid. And I remember like how upset it, how upset my parents were and all of that. And you know, some of those things stick with you. So I like, and we also had it at our, uh, at our condo and it happened on the second floor and just all this stuff. And, and uh, I remember I caught it. It was right before I went to work and I was like, something's up. And I went up there and I was able to, you know, stop the flow. But it's a weird phobia. I'm sorry. Phobia is fear, right? Uh, but, but I have at our place, I have this little device. It's really great. And it sits, it sits on the floor. And if it senses any moisture, it pings my phone. How cool is that? It just goes, and my phone will go bloop, and then I'll, then I'll panic, you know. Uh, but, it, but at least I know that it's there. Well, that gives me a lot of security, a lot of security. Do you know what helps me to sleep at night? The fact that I have an alarm that's going to wake me up. And I'm not going to oversleep. Or if you're like my son, Royal, he'll just wake up at 4 a.m. like he did today, which is a real blessing. Isn't that great? Uh, <laughs> uh, in fact, actually, he woke up the other boys who then got up, who then came up and woke me up. So that was really great to have to tell him, go back to bed. It's 4 a.m. Um, and uh, <laughs> but those alarms give us peace, right? A smoke alarm in your home can give you peace. Uh, a, a security alarm on your house or a security camera, that can give you peace because you know that if something happens, you're going to be warned about it or you'll, you'll have what you need. And, and that's how it is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit alarms the soul. The Holy Spirit uh, uh, can warn us about things. And that should give you peace. should give you great peace. You know, the early church understood so clearly uh, the Holy Spirit as a comforter. And during those times of unrest, uh, both in their society and today as we have unrest in our society, we need to turn to the Holy Spirit for guidance. It can give us peace because we need guidance when it comes to the things that are going on in the world stage today. You know, the Bible says that he will guide you into all truth as we read earlier. It's a, way that saying, it's a way of saying the Holy Spirit will be the steering wheel in your life. Now, if you need to go somewhere, there's two ways to get there, right? If you need to go somewhere you've never been before, the first way is you get a map, 
no, you put in your phone, right? <laughs> you put in your phone, and uh, some of you will never know the joy of trying to drive and look at a paper map at the same time. It's a wonderful thing. And I spent many hours being lost uh, as, a, as a young person. But you put in your phone or your GPS, and you follow it. Now, that's one way of doing it. You go there on yourself. But you know what's a better way to get somewhere? Is if you go with someone who's already been there. Someone who knows the way. It's a lot faster and a lot of times it's better than the GPS can even take you. So there's a, those are the two ways to get to a destination. And that's how it works with the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit knows where we're going. The Holy Spirit knows what's ahead. The Holy Spirit knows what, uh, what, is, what is going on. And so we can trust the Spirit for wisdom. We can trust the Spirit for confidence. We can trust the Holy Spirit to help us respond in the situations that we are even in right now. What a comforting thought that is. <laughs> And rather than taking our cues from what we're watching online or taking our cues from that uncle who's always posting on Facebook and taking the way that we're looking at a situation based off of our coworkers' viewpoint. And, and by the way, I'll just say this uh, about what's going on in our society right now. Listen, what it has revealed to me is the great insecurity of our society. And this is why they, they are afraid of dying. <laughs> They're afraid of dying. You say, well, I'm afraid of dying too. Yeah, I, I get that but I at least have a hope. And we live in a hopeless world and I think that's why everything is just taken off so quickly because we live in a world with no hope. And as Christians, we need to look to the Holy Spirit for how to respond in a proper way. Not, not diminish people's fears, not try to pretend like there's nothing going on. We know this is a serious thing. But at the same time, we respond in a correct way because the Holy Spirit is going to guide us. That's what allows us to have peace. That's what allows the church in Jerusalem, Galilee, and Samaria to be at rest when there are people trying to kill them. And there's people trying to destroy who they are just because they have faith in Jesus Christ. And it says that they were at rest, at rest. And you know what? We can be at rest too when we find ourselves and remind ourselves of these three simple truths. You know, as believers, I, I, I think that we can be clear-minded I think that we can be full of wisdom. I think that we can be encouraging. And I think that we can walk in peace because of a reverent knowledge of our almighty, all-powerful, unchanging, in-control God. And we've got to step back sometimes and get to that point and just be reminded of the fact that God loves you. He gave his spirit to you for times just like this. There is no one who is going to get sick that God is going to be surprised by. There's no one that may lose their life that God's going to be like, oh, I totally didn't see that coming. God knows. God knows. And you know what? That should give us comfort. And we struggle with that. I get it. We're like, well, okay, then God's happy that I'm going to get sick. <laughs> That's a whole nother level. And we just had a great apologetics weekend about subjects like that. Why do bad things happen to good people? Go back and watch some of those sessions. But the point of this today is, is, is this. It is possible to have rest in troublesome times. It is possible to have peace. And I believe that God led me to this stopping point in Acts for this reason. It's that we can be reminded that it is possible to have church, or a church, yeah, it is possible to have church too, and to have rest, <laughs> even though there's chaos all around us. We can have rest and peace through our relationship with one another, through our relationship with God and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then I want you to see this last part of the verse that I love so much, verse 31. Look what it says at the very end. It says, 
They were multiplied. I love that. They were multiplied. You know what that tells me? Peace attracts. Peace attracts. Calmness is attractive. (laughs) Faith is attractive. And most of all, love points other people to Jesus Christ. I believe that in that early church, the people in Jerusalem knew that they were under attack, but yet they saw them at rest. They saw them at peace. And I'll tell you what, this time right now is a great opportunity for us as believers to spread the truth about Jesus Christ, to spread the love of God. As I mentioned uh, in the video I sent out earlier this week, uh, I had an opportunity this week just because I was picking up something for the church at, at a business and they're like, what do you think about all this? And, uh, and they were all nervous and worried about business and all. And guess what? It gave me an opportunity to share with them about Jesus Christ. And we need to recognize that. We need to recognize that. Peace is attractive, especially in a time where there is no peace, where people are, are, are concerned and worried. The result of that is that they were multiplied. I believe people are looking for some peace right now, and they can find it in us, true peace. It's not going to come in more protective measures or more government regulations. True peace can be found through Jesus Christ. So when it comes to these three thoughts today, do you need any of them in your life right now? Maybe you need all three right now. Maybe you need all three. I would encourage you to be an encourager. Be an edifier. Re-examine and remind yourself of what it looks like to walk in the fear of the Lord. And then be encouraged today by the comfort of the Holy Spirit. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Vance City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.